Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Abigail Favalli. Abigail Favalli is an associate professor of English and the dean of the College of Humanities at George Fox University in Oregon. She has written The Eclipse of Sex by the Rise of Gender, and she has a related forthcoming Ignatius Press book called The Genesis of Gender. I wanted to talk to Abigail because it's Women's History Month, and in the news today, there's so many discussions around gender identity. And how is it that we can respect the reality of women, human females, while not harming those who identify as transgender or are experiencing gender dysphoria? I mean, we even have laws about when we can talk about sexual orientation or gender identity that are being brought about now. Like, when is it appropriate to talk about this with kids or when is it not appropriate? And Abigail really takes us back to a Catholic understanding of all of these discussions. She talks about the sacramentality of humanists, of being versus doing. She talks about things in a way that honors bodies, individuals, and cultures, And she rejects the noise of the culture wars and the extremes. She really helps us contemplate an integrated understanding of womanhood that accounts for physical reality without limiting it to role-playing. I think this is a great conversation, and I believe you'll enjoy it and have much to learn from it or even be challenged by it. But I invite you to listen attentively to what Abigail has to say. America Media has a very special offer for you this Lent. What is it? Well, our team has written daily Lenten reflections to help our digital subscribers on their journey toward Easter. The authors include Father Matt Malone, Father James Martin, the hosts of Jesuitical, and myself, and many, many more. To get access to these reflections, visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe and become a subscriber today. Stick around. My conversation with Abigail Favalli is up next. Hey, Abigail, I'm so glad you could join me for the Glory Purvis podcast. Sounds weird saying my own name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be on your podcast, Gloria. I've been a fan for a while, so this is is exciting. Yeah. Well, you know, what's extra special is it's Women's History Month. That's true. Women's History Month, however you want to say it. And I love talking about women. (laughs) I am one. You are one. (laughs) And I think it's important to have these conversations, especially when it seems like what a woman is or what a woman Mm -hmm. can do. 
mm-hmm. and what it means to be a woman is the topic of so many discussions, mm-hmm. and particularly in Catholic circles too. But I think it's important maybe to talk about your background. I know you converted to Catholicism. Could you talk about that and how this might affect our conversation on women? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. And the question of women, it's so interesting. It's very much tied up in my own spiritual and intellectual journey. So I grew up in conservative evangelicalism in what I call the Mormon belt. So Utah and Eastern Idaho. Okay. And in that context, I got a very specific and narrow view of what a woman is and what she should do. There wasn't actually a lot of discussion about women. I never heard a sermon preached on a woman. I think when I was a child in Sunday school, I would hear some of the stories of biblical women. But certainly as you go through adulthood, there was almost this sense of, well, the real serious stuff is really hearing men talk about men. And that's kind of the important thing. But there definitely was a sense that women aren't supposed to teach men and women are never supposed to lead. And that was confusing for me, I think, because my individual disposition is there are ways in which I'm stereotypically feminine. There are ways in which I'm not. And so I was never quite sure how to navigate that. So when I went to college, I became really interested in the woman question. It became more urgent, right? I mean, when you're in college, you're really kind of figuring out who you are and what you want to do with your life. And there were ways in which, you know, I had, I was ambitious, competitive, you know, and I wasn't quite sure, like, how do I navigate this as a woman? And I went to a Christian school where I currently teach, George Fox University, and we had to take at least two Bible classes back then. So I was steeped in scripture already, but then actually studying the Bible at the university level, Mm -hmm. I began to see parts of the Bible that I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, I don't remember that being in there. And my professors didn't have a very satisfying answer. And so I just started reading on my own. And that's when I first discovered feminist biblical criticism and feminist theology. And I just kind of dove into the deep end on that. I thought, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. I went on in grad school. I did a master's in women's writing and gender and then a, a PhD in English, but really focused on feminist literary criticism and women's writing. And so I was just steeped in this question. And in my 20s then, I think through that postgraduate study, I really began to adopt a worldview more unconsciously than consciously that I now recognize as a deeply postmodern worldview in that I saw kind of all of reality as a construct of language and society. And we can talk about what that means, I think, further in our Mm, conversation. But basically at the end of my 20s, I became a mother, and that really completely upended my world. So when I became a mother, I think some of the core ideas of feminism, like, you know, men and women are basically interchangeable. Right. That made less sense through pregnancy, childbirth, lactation, and also the value of autonomy. I was just struck by how interdependent we are. Anyway, so I had kind of a crisis at that point and suddenly became Catholic. It's a strange story. (laughs) But then after I became Catholic, I began to look at that woman question from a different light. And I was so surprised at the richness I found in Catholic tradition and thought on the theological and sacramental meaning of being a woman, which was something I had never encountered either in Protestantism or certainly not in secular feminism. So it's really kind of in the Catholic worldview that I've found what I was looking for, you know, for about 20 years. I hear U2's Bono still haven't found what I'm looking for. And you're like, I found it. I did. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) 
I saw a bumper sticker once, just to make this clear. There was a bumper sticker that says, my superpower is I make breast milk. What about you? You know, (laughs) something like that. But in a real way, our bodies sustain our children in their early years, their early life. And that is so different for the kind of way in which my husband could sustain our child, you know? Right. So I, you know, I'm just, were there any real, like, big aha moments in that, that if you could share some of them? Well, I think there are two things that I found in the Catholic understanding of woman that I hadn't found. And one of them is the one you're mentioning there, which is really this this understanding of the body as a gift and this kind of sacred or almost a sacrament, right? Because the Mm -hmm. body is what reveals the invisible reality of the person, right? So our our bodies are deeply important. And still, I'm just, I'm kind of blown away by that because the version of Christianity that I grew up in was deeply suspicious of the body and embodied life. And also secular feminism has a strange kind of ironic relationship with femaleness. And there's kind of this underlying implicit idea that to be free, women must become as much like a man as possible. Yes, so there's this I, kind of I anxiety about femaleness. Yes, yes. So that was one thing. The body is a gift. And I think the other thing would be in the Catholic understanding of woman, there's more of an emphasis on being rather than doing. So when I grew up in conservative evangelicalism, it was all about roles and tasks and everything was kind of separate. And here's like the chore list for women. Here's the chore list for men. Here's the virtue list for women, which has just like obedience and humility on it. And then here's all the other stuff for men, which doesn't have obedience and humility on it. You know, just everything was polarized and focused on doing. And even in gender theory, there's this emphasis on, you know, gender doesn't really exist. It's just something you perform. Yeah. But in the Catholic understanding, because of the sacramental nature of the body and particularly the sex body, right? So maleness and femaleness are embodied signs that point toward the reality of divine human communion. Yes. That central nuptial metaphor in the Catholic tradition of Christ and the bride. And that was just, I mean, that's so beautiful. And it still blows my mind to just think like, no matter what I'm doing, Like, you know, whether I am like breastfeeding a child or changing a tire or whatever, in that moment, I'm living out my sex in a way that is kind of pointing to something divine. Like, that's incredible. That's just so beautiful. Yeah, I think sometimes we haven't spent enough time meditating on the fact that God did make us male and female and meditating Mm -hmm. on that and meditating on femaleness as God understands it and why. And that it's a gift. Yeah, and there's some beauty in that. And that we need to consider that there's something beautiful that we, as women, contribute to everything just by our being. Mm -hmm. But I will say something that has been disturbing to me, frankly, and maybe it's always been there, and maybe I'm just noticing it more because it's maybe getting more press, is there seems to be this rise in focusing on, like you said, roles for men and women, some within the Catholic Church, meaning that once you are married, Mm -hmm. you have no agency, that Mm -hmm. everything is subject to, I think, the whims of your husband. Mm -hmm. And it sort of, in my opinion, makes women into so like asking permission for every single thing, as if you are not some thinking, rational creature, Mm -hmm. that you need to ask your husband permission for every single thing. Mm -hmm. Or, and I've seen... um, a Catholic professor advocate not recruiting women for engineering or something Mm -hmm. like that, that that's a problem, that women getting these degrees and delaying marriage, 
are problems that can be solved by simply cutting us off from education, you know, cutting us off from voting, basically making sure we have no independence whatsoever. Yeah, it's really a bizarre phenomenon, I think, especially with my background, because those sorts of ideas, although I don't know, like women not being able to vote, that's even extreme, I think, for my (laughs) fundamentalist upbringing. And it's really surprising to me because it's so out of line with what the church has really been exploring, especially in the last hundred years. For me, like discovering such richness and nuance, and especially this focus on the kind of spiritual and sacramental realities of gender, to see Catholics kind of like just shoo-shooing that away and then saying, no, no, but I really just want this list of chores. And that's (laughs) like what I want womanhood to be about. You know, I'm like, why are you, you know, there's this feast and you just kind of want these little, you know, like goldfish to eat or something. Like, it's strange. So, you know, Abigail, one of the things that, you know, I'm hearing a lot, and I guess some men, Catholic men's attempt to make the world holy is that women really need to be more into the role-playing. You know, we need to get married and we need to have children and biology is real, which biology is real, but that if we don't do those things and do those things early, that that's a problem. So in other words, how do we honor our bodies as women, as men, our biologies, our sex bodies, without being... I don't know, letting that being over-determining everything that we do so that a woman could just go and pursue other things other than marriage. And that's okay, mm-hmm. even if we have what they call a biological clock. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how would sure. we, how would we deal with that? Right. Yeah. So that's a great question because sometimes it seems like responses to the question of gender or womanhood either downplay the reality of the body, maybe disregarding it altogether, yeah. or they see the fact of sexual dimorphism as translating into fixed roles. So there's a couple of things I would say. And one is that, like I mentioned before, sexual difference is not just about procreation in the temporal realm. Mm -hmm. Its ultimate significance is how it points toward, it's a sign of this greater existence and this greater communion with Christ in the next life, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I think Catholic tradition has going for it is this emphasis on the sacramental and spiritual meaning of our bodies. So it's not just about how that plays out in the temporal world. And another person I think who's really helpful in thinking about this is St. Edith Stein. Mm -hmm. So she talks about, we have to think about human beings on kind of three different dimensions. Okay. So there's the human dimension and on that dimension, both men and women are fully human. So both men and women have access to the full range of human virtues, human reason, right? So all of those things, there's this shared humanity. Then there Mm -hmm. is the dimension of sexual difference. So in this dimension, our embodiments, like we're kind of different modalities of being human, right? That play out in a bodily way. Mm -hmm. So there are some differences there. And then there's also the realm of the individual. So the individual person with a unique personality, I mean, every human being is completely unique. I mean, that's incredible to just sometimes think about that. It's just, I, I think know, that's right? so dazzling. <laughs> like we're unrepeatable, each of us. And mm-hmm. so I am this particular instantiation of humanness and femaleness, right? That's yes. never existed before and never will exist again, which is amazing. So I think we have to keep track of all three levels. So the roles based, I think what happens is it loses sight of the human level and the individual level. And one other thing I love about Catholicism is actually that 
it very much takes into account kind of historical and cultural context. Yes. Like I was just reading Pope Pius XI, I think, his Casti Kenobi encyclical, which I think is a kind of an urtext for a lot of these more traditional role-based perspectives on the sexes. But even in that encyclical, he's talking about male headship. And he says, you know, what headship looks like will vary in both kind of kind and degree depending upon different cultures. And yes, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, of course, like this is <laughs> because what's ultimately, I think, important is the spiritual realities. And so how those are lived out, you can't just have a prescriptive one size fits all model that you impose upon people because God calls us to certain things, right? So I think, however, for the Catholic, the ultimate vocation is, you know, we are all called to this gift of self in love. We are all called to self-giving love. So what that looks like, like whether that happens in the context of marriage or not, whether that happens with children, biological children or not, that is more circumstantial, I think, than essential to the vocation, the shared vocation of both men and women. So I think in the Catholic view, we actually have a lot of freedom in how we live out that gift of self, and we can listen to God's call in our lives. But I think also, you know, there are problems in our society. You know, there's a very real crisis of meaning and of community. I think there there are some good things that have come from the feminist movement, and there are also some not good fruits of the feminist movement. And so I think the Catholic response would be to look at it and say, okay, well, what is true here? What is good here? And what is not good, right? Rather than just like, oh my gosh, how can we basically rewind history to before the first wave of feminism? Because that's when things were like super good. And I'm like, if you look at the history of Black women, actually, Uh no, they weren't super good then. I was like, what are you talking about? Exactly. But, you know, there's something you said. You said there are bad fruits, of course, that have come Mm -hmm. from feminist, the movement or feminism. What are some of the bad fruits you think? Yeah, well, I think one of the big bad fruits <laughs> of especially when you see this really in second wave feminism, so that would be the women's liberation movement that started in the 1970s. Yeah. Earlier versions of feminism were not really trying to well, I guess there wasn't this discomfort with femaleness. Yes. There was rather this sense like, okay, how can we make sure that, you know, women aren't treated as second-class citizens in our in right. our society. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the first wave of feminism, there was a concern about, for example, regulating births, but the onus was on male chastity, right? Yes. So men yes. need to become more virtuous and exercise more self-control. Self-control. Um, and, you know, women mm-hmm. need to be legally protected against marital rape, that sort of thing. So that was right. kind of the conversation there. And so in the second wave of feminism, then basically the female body gets scapegoated, I think, ultimately, where the female fertility becomes the problem. And so women physiologically need to almost be made male as much as possible. So, Mm -hmm. you know, effectively, at least temporarily sterilized through birth control. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, then the child becomes the scapegoat, right, or pregnancy. And so Mm -hmm. I think that has been very damaging for our society in so many ways. I mean, not only because of the loss of life and the loss of unborn life, but I think also our culture embracing that idea of kind of default sterility of women has changed and very much cheapened the way we view sex. So I think the sexual revolution was ultimately really good, good. I mean, I'm using air quotes here. Yeah. Good in the sense, I think it was good for men 
in that it basically let them off the hook. I don't think I actually right. think that's good for men, but you know what I mean? Right. It basically, yeah, yeah. it they basically, can run wild. yeah, exactly. No consequence. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So by kind of removing the prospect of creating a new human being, well, whenever that would happen, women are still the ones left holding the consequences, right? And that that has to be kind of that freedom supposedly that women need to have is violently enforced either on their own body and on their own children, right? So mm-hmm. I think that that is not a good fruit. And I one thing that you can really see, especially since the 1970s, is how much the hypersexualization of women has just escalated yeah. and how much more we have a very pornified idea of what it means to be a woman. And I think that's feeding into some of the cultural confusion about gender more broadly. So I would say that's a big one. That's a big bad fruit there. I get it. I agree. I see the impacts of it. And I also think as someone that has a daughter, you know, I worry about, you know, how do these things impact her sense of self, you know, and how she is to move through the world. But you mentioned gender, Mm -hmm. and that's a big topic of discussion now. How would you, like, even the concept of gender apart from our bodies, our Mm -hmm. biological sex, maybe talk a little bit more about that. Sure. It's hard to talk about gender because it carries so many conflicting meanings depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. But it's a term that really since about the 1960s, it was introduced through this psychologist, John Money, who's his own piece of work. We don't necessarily have to talk about him, but <laughs> okay. so basically he coined the term gender role because he had this view that there's, okay, there's biological sex, maleness and femaleness. Yeah. But then there's this kind of social meaning that's placed on maleness and femaleness in terms of roles, in terms of, you know, what men and women should do. And that, that he saw as completely malleable and kind of created by society. So not something that has any real connection to biological sex. So he used the term gender to name that. And then Mm -hmm. second wave feminists really grabbed hold of that concept because it was helpful in making a distinction between femaleness and then the way femaleness is expressed by culture, the certain norms or expectations attached to human femaleness. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where gender became a term for that, right? So you have a sex, but then you also have these social meanings and social interpretations of sex that are attached to it. So that's kind of the sex-gender split Mm -hmm. in feminism. And then when you get more into the 80s and 90s, then you have Judith Butler, who's kind of the godmother of gender theory. And she basically makes the argument, well, Gender is a social construct, but so is sex. And then that's so when, wait, wait, let yeah, me okay. stop you there. Because okay. I know that some people listening, social construct, what right. is that? Right. Okay. So if gender is a social construct, basically the idea is there's no innate givenness or meaning to being a woman, for example. Rather, all of that is created by societies and cultures and language, especially. All right. So there's different kind of variations of social constructionism. You can be kind of a soft social constructionist and recognize that, you know, okay, there is this kind of given meaning to femaleness, but, you know, the way that is expressed is shaped by culture, right? I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. a fair view, right? Yeah, but that's, sure. that's mm-hmm. not the kind of hard line social constructionism, what you see in, say, Judith Butler, where she would say, any attempt at articulating meaning or even categorization is completely a social fiction. So she says gender is a social construct as well as sex 
Yes. By sex, she means the biological sex. Yes. So she's not denying the fact that, like, okay, different sex organs exist. But mm-hmm. what she's saying is that any attempt to categorize those, to name a category, like male or female, that mm-hmm. categorization is a social construct that creates meaning. So, you know, she might say, like, well, why would we have these such these huge, important categories around maleness and femaleness and not, like, hair color? right? It's kind of arbitrary. And there's all these like this social, huge social meaning that's heaped on it. Is she then saying that, and therefore, since it's a social construct and has social meanings, we can change that construct? Yes and no. I mean, she's a little more pessimistic, right? So she thinks that there's a lot of social determinism at work, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't totally change it, but that you can mess with it, right? Like right. you can blur boundaries, you can yeah. transgress norms, you can play with it, you can kind of do this performative rebellion with gender Mm -hmm. norms, basically. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting and kind of ironic is that fast forward 20 years and kind of in our cultural moment, whereas Judith Butler is almost like, we need to kind of just move beyond all these categories, like the Mm -hmm. categories are the problem. Yeah. And now we see just this proliferation of different categories that are also like very much policed, right? Which I think is fascinating because I think it shows how much human beings just desire to observe meaning and name meaning in the world. So basically, from my perspective, the question is, all right, do our categories correspond to what's real? Do they name what's real or not? So for Judith Butler, she would say, well, there is no real to name. So she rejects this kind of correspondence idea of language or knowledge and reality or truth. So yeah, I mean, she's like hardcore. Wow. I don't think people kind of realize how extreme her perspective is. Because I keep thinking, you know, the purpose of language is to convey truth so people using right reason can make decisions. Yes, Butler would be like, yeah, no. All, all, <laughs> any truth claim <laughs> is ultimately about power. So those oh, who okay. have social power get to create truth. Now, there's something true to that, right? Because we mm-hmm. can look at, you know, like Nazi Germany, or even the categorization of like whiteness and blackness, you know, mm-hmm. how those sort of categorizations have been used by people in power to impose yeah. social norms. But what I would say is that's a misuse of language. Like Thank that's a you. misuse of language that distorts reality and actually it's, you know, it leads us to evil yes. rather than, you know, away from truth, right? So that's where I'm like, okay, the postmodernists have something right in that they're recognizing the power of language and how it can be misused. But I'm like, but there's something real and good underneath things. And our language should correspond to that reality. Yeah, Yeah, I just don't see how we, how could we convey meaning with languages just not attached to anything? Yeah. But you said um, there are new categories. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So, I mean, there, yeah, it's hard to keep up with the new categories. Yeah. There's a lot, but especially (laughs) around gender, right? So there's trans, which is been a long-standing, I think, category. Then there's non-binary, genderqueer, gender fluid, agender, bi-gender, right? I mean, depending on which online dictionary you choose to look at, there, you know, there'll be different lists. Okay, so here's an interesting point that I think sometimes people miss. Like, my suspicion is that when, let's say, a young woman says, I'm non-binary, she is trying to name something real. Like she's not thinking in her head, you know, there's no such thing as reality or truth. You know, so I can basically choose any label. I think because, you know, human beings by nature, we desire to know, we see reality, we want to name it, right? So Mm -hmm. I think 
most people who are trying to identify a certain way, identify as a certain kind of gender, they are trying to name something that's real. And they're not just thinking like, oh, this is just a big language game and I can have fun right. with it. So what's interesting is that this anti-realist philosophy, really this anti-realist theory of gender has kind of opened up our categories. But then there are the people who are kind of step into those categories are making realist claims. It can be troubling, I think, in some ways, because then we get these really hot debates about what is real. Like, what is a woman, right? Well, here's the thing. So when somebody says, I'm non-binary, I'm genderqueer, and it's a, a lot of us don't even know what that means. And we don't know what it means because it doesn't seem attached to anything real, anything concrete. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to concretize ideas that aren't attached to anything other than their subjective understanding of themselves. Right. And I think that that makes it difficult when we have language to describe ourselves or describe like I'm a woman, I'm a man, mm-hmm. that people can tie back to an objective physical reality to at least know what that means without necessarily assigning particular roles to those meanings. Right. Yes. Right. So that's where I think it gets murky, it gets difficult. Mm-hmm. And I also think of the implications of ignoring our sexed bodies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, what, you know, how does that how does that play out? Yeah, I th- I think what's happening is that there's this kind of dominant framework and in my work I call it the gender paradigm that mm. has come to prominence in our culture. And it's a lot of different experiences on circumstances like a lot of different people are kind of attracted to the gender paradigm for different reasons, but that ultimately I think it's a bad framework. And so mm. it is harmful, like it is harmful for people, even though it might seem to sort of explain a certain part of their reality. I think because it ultimately does denigrate the body mm. and in some cases actually can invite someone into a kind of path of medicalization, which can actually lead to kind of long lasting physical harm. Mm-hmm. But then there's also this kind of looping effect, right? Because let's say, I don't know, let's say you have like a 16 year old autistic girl who's always felt like, oh, I never fit in everywhere I go. And I'm really interested in math and I want to be an engineer and I'm always around a bunch of boys. I'm the only girl in the room. You know, like that's a very real experience. But now all of a sudden we have this kind of this script, you know, that she can kind of go online and suddenly someone's like, oh, you're trans, right? Right. That's why you're feeling this way. That's why you're feeling isolated. That's why you don't feel at home in your body. I mean, what teenage girl feels at home in their body, first of all. Mm -hmm. So those experiences, you know, of discomfort with one's body, or just feeling like you don't fit, like all of a sudden now that it's almost like those experiences are kind of being funneled through this very narrow and simplistic narrative that's saying, oh, well, here's the problem. You're trans and it's actually your body that's the problem. And so you just need to change your body and that will fix everything. So remove those parts of your body that are specifically female, get rid of the breasts, get rid of the uterus, um, try to create a penis, you know, through surgery and all this stuff that is, you know, has long lasting consequences. And that's, yeah. So that's another piece of it that I think is really harmful that I don't think people are being told the truth about what medicalization looks like. So for example, if you, you know, Planned Parenthood has like jumped on this money train real fast, right? So now if you just go to any kind of Planned Parenthood website, 
and they'll they'll list some of like here are some of the side effects for you know what they call gender affirming hormones, which is basically taking cross sex hormones. That's hormones, yeah. Yeah, then they'll list very mild and kind of cosmetic side effects, and they won't mention any of the serious ones. Like they won't yeah. mention, for example, sterilization. They won't mention organ atrophy. Right? They'll just mention things like, oh, you know, you might grow more body hair or something. And it, you or know, your voice drops for yeah. women, you, on t- and it doesn't yes. come back. Well, that's what's interesting. So when I was writing the book um, that I just finished, The Genesis of Gender, one of the interesting side effects that I would hear in some detransitioner stories of women who were on testosterone was that not only does it deepen your voice, but actually it thickens your vocal cords. Like that's how it deepens your voice. And so there was one woman who talked about, you know, she's kind of a petite woman and how actually that now causes her physical pain to speak and she can't really sing anymore. You know, and I'm just like, oh, oh no. my gosh, like, we what don't. are we doing to our youth? Like, I just have, I have so much compassion for people who, you know, who are, who are suffering and who feel like there's something deeply wrong. I'm unhappy. I don't feel like I fit in. But I think this, this framework, this gender paradigm, it's ultimately this almost diabolical temptation, right? Because it's promising these things that it can't deliver. We'll be right back. So there is a question now about adults who don't feel comfortable in their bodies. And so why would it be wrong for them? Or why would it might be not healthy for them? Or even from a Catholic perspective, what would be wrong with them, mm-hmm. you know, changing their bodies and taking the cross-sex hormones? Wouldn't that be the healthier thing? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I do think it gets more complicated when you're talking yeah. about adults, for sure. Yeah. I think from a Catholic perspective, you definitely still run into the problem of, you know, taking a healthy body essentially mm-hmm. and making it unhealthy, right? So there mm-hmm. still, I think, is an anthropological problem in the view that one can be a woman and not female, right? Because I mm-hmm. think in the in the Catholic understanding, a human being is a unity of body and soul. And that sacramentality of the body that we talked about, it's not something that you have to achieve. It's not like you know, the idea that the body reveals the person, it always is already doing that. It's not something you have to kind of inflict on the body to make happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think that there is an anthropological problem and then some ethical problems with at least medical transition. Now that said, I do think actually the Catholic tradition has some resources for, for people who, again, for whatever reason, don't feel at home in their sex, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, I remember talking to one man with gender dysphoria, who's not Catholic, but he's Christian. And and he was talking about how the idea of being the bride of Christ was a way (laughs) for him to kind of lean into, um, that experience, right. Without actually doing damage to his body or rejecting his maleness, Mm. but a way to kind of integrate it, right. To kind of integrate that dysphoria he was feeling and to, to really think of himself as Christ's bride. So I think sometimes maybe what's happening is that, you know, on the individual level, just someone's individual personality might really kind of feel at odds with the stereotype of their sex, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Like you, that's right. not something you need to fix. Like right. it's okay to be gender atypical, you know, like there's, and I think in the, in our kind of communion of saints, we have so many examples of people who didn't, you know, who were at odds with the the kind of norms and ideals of their time when it comes to gender. 
But here's the thing. But yet they never rejected or said they weren't male or female, right? Exactly. So maybe the problem is that we want to stick so rigidly to these conceptions of femininity or masculinity. I mean, that's an irony, right? Like if gender isn't rooted in the body, then the only place for it really to be rooted is stereotypes. Yes. Right. So if a woman isn't an adult human female, yes. then she becomes this kind of caricature, basically, this almost this like social artifice that, yes. you know, that anyone can kind of claim or appropriate. A costume. Yeah, exactly. A costume, right? It's funny you say that because I remember one of my early times when I first moved into DC, I saw I was in my car stuck in traffic. And this figure in looked like almost nude on a bicycle with this long hair and just formed. And I looked and it was a man dressed as if he were a woman. And the immediate thing I thought was, what a, <laughs> oh, how typical. That's what a man thinks a woman looks like. You know yeah. what I mean? That's, mm-hmm. it was so highly sexualized and so provocative that I really thought no woman <laughs> is gonna, that would not be how, oh yeah, I'm gonna get up this morning and wear some sheer nearly naked outfit and right. get on a bike with, you know, five inch heels and yeah, it was just such a, in my opinion, a male conception of what a woman is looks like. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's really why I kind of got into this discussion. I think if trans identities and trans identifying people had, you know, kind of been this, this very kind of like niche group, whatever, you know, like, like it Mm -hmm. has been for a while, I don't think Mm -hmm. I would have felt compelled to write about it or really, you know, begin to research it. But it's because this has become such a widespread phenomenon and the very definition of of woman is now at risk. That's when I'm like, well, okay, that does affect me like very deeply, right? So yeah, I am going to write about this. I am going to argue against definitions of woman that reduce woman to this kind of pornified costume or that denigrate the female body. It's something I think we have to, to grapple with. But all of this is just so interesting. And so much to consider, especially during Women's History Month, the meaning of women, Mm -hmm. the meaning of being a woman. And how do we not lose that in all this discussion? How do we make sure we hold on to those very meanings that you outlined, particularly the sacramental meaning Mm -hmm. of woman? And I think that'll be helpful for people who are trying to move through this conversation just like you and I are, and to not, not to jettison those things that are beautiful, good, and true about ourselves for the sake of political expediency or comfort. Yeah. Amen. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, and could you leave us a review? I would love to hear from you. By the way, you can also follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.